What's going on, food eaters? This is Mel Weinstein, host of the Food Labels Revealed podcast and the self-professed prophet of processed foods. Welcome to my monthly podcast. This is episode number 44. How do we defend ourselves against the unhealthy, ultra-processed foods filling the shelves of grocery stores, convenience stores, and big box stores, and populating the meals in fast food restaurants? Education, education, and education. We need to become informed. This podcast certainly helps, but there are other great resources out there. In today's episode, I review some of my favorite books that help to educate me about the dangers of highly processed foods and the standard American diet. For those listeners new to the podcast, here's some info about me. I have a 30-plus year background in chemistry education, food testing, and food chemical research. And for much of that time, I've had a fascination, some may call it a sickly obsession, with processed foods, what's in those foods, and how they may be affecting our health. I look behind the factory walls at all of those strange, hard-to-pronounce, and sometimes dangerous ingredients that wind up in many of the foods stocked on grocery store shelves. This is a 100% free, on-demand radio program. Don't even think about sending me money. This podcast has no sponsors, financial supporters, or Patreon websites. All the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine, and to keep it that way, I don't want to work with any business, commercial product, or sponsoring organization. All I ask of you is to listen, and if you like what you hear, please let others know through social media or the old-fashioned way, word of mouth. Website and contact information will be provided at the end of the show. On with the podcast. Until I got into my late 30s, I really didn't pay much attention to food ingredients. Yes, I did read food labels, but mainly to find out how much sugar and fat were in the foods. I, like many other people, trusted that my government wasn't going to allow food manufacturers to put anything poisonous, hazardous, or injurious in the foods that they were selling to me. Plus, I had no idea how ingredients were made. I tended towards natural and organic foods, but due to the expense and lack of availability, they weren't the mainstay of my diet. Consequently, I did wind up eating processed foods quite a bit. Then I got a job as an analytical chemist in a multinational food ingredients company. That's when my education regarding processed food ingredients began. Over the next 20 years, I learned what the processed food industry was all about, and my eyes got widened. At the core of my education was the realization that most of the foods that you buy in a grocery store were not the direct result of a farm-to-table system, but they were creations based on chemical, biological, and food science research. Those corn chips on the shelf, despite what the package might say, were not made from some tried and true recipe handed down from grandma to grandkid. Those chips were the result of carefully chosen ingredients and a preparation method based upon hundreds, if not thousands, of experimental studies to create the cheapest, best-tasting, and appetite-grabbing product. Many people had their formative hands in those chips. Food scientists, 
chemists, biologists, technicians, sensory specialists, food tasters, marketers, and potential customers. The company I worked for had over 100 employees in their research facility. When they decided to investigate the creation of a new food ingredient, whether it was a synthetic fat replacer or an artificial fiber material, a large team of professionals were involved in the project, which could amount to millions of research dollars and thousands of development and testing hours. I learned that putting a new processed food ingredient into the marketplace was a huge investment of time and money. And it was risky, uh, particularly if competing companies were trying to do the same thing. The incentive for spending huge amounts of R&D money was, in many cases, to take a cheap agri-commodity, think soy, corn, wheat, which sold for pennies per pound, and turning it into a valuable ingredient selling for dollars per pound. The profit margin zoomed upwards. This conversion was called adding value. If the new ingredient could break through into the marketplace, then it might be a huge windfall for a food ingredients company. The company I worked for was mid-size, so they probably had thousands of employees worldwide working on product development. And that company uh, is not a direct seller to the consumer. You and I can't buy their products in a supermarket or any other store. They are suppliers to small and large food manufacturing companies, big companies like Kellogg's, General Mills, Danone, Mondelez, Mars, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Unilever, Nestle, and Associated British Foods. Those 10 companies manufacture the majority of the world's processed foods. You may have noticed that I didn't mention some well-known companies, at least in America, like Kraft, Quaker Oats, and Oscar Mayer. That's because Kraft and Oscar Mayer are part of Mendelez International, and Quaker Oats is owned by PepsiCo. Now, those are just the companies that put their names on the packaged foods. Behind the scenes are companies that supply ingredients to the food manufacturers. Companies like Arthur Daniel Midland, Cargill, and Tate and Lyle. You will not hear much about them since they don't sell direct to the public, but they too have their own large groups of researchers and product developers. Finally, there's a sector of the processed food industry that's pretty hidden from the public. Many food ingredients and products are developed in universities, particularly in land-grant universities, which are federally funded as agricultural and technical schools. Their research programs often target the development of new products using agricultural commodities such as grains, beans, dairy, eggs, etc., Frequently, the research programs in these schools collaborate with food manufacturers in the development and testing of new food products. For example, the popular drink Gatorade originated at the University of Florida in 1965. Just recently, the University of Illinois aligned themselves with Cargill. From an announcement this year, students focused on solving some of the world's greatest challenges across the global food and agricultural systems, will soon have a new space to test their work thanks to a partnership with Cargill. The research park at the Urbana-Champaign campus will be the home of the newest Cargill Innovation Lab, the company announced today. So, in summary... 
food ingredients are a big business involving lots of people and money. Now, back to you as a consumer. How do you get a handle on the myriad ingredients that wind up in your food? There's something like 9,000 to 10,000 food additives on the FDA's GRAST list. That stands for Generally Recognized as Safe. GRAST. Well, you could get a food science degree or go to work for a food ingredient company for 20 years, but that involves some time and, and also money. My recommendation is cheaper and faster. Just do some reading. In this episode, I will be reviewing five of my favorite books about the processed food industry. These are reference books to me. They range broadly from a detailed list of food additives to foods designed to grab us physically and psychologically to the clever and scientific usage of flavorings to a detailed look at how processed foods are made and finally to the connections between processed foods and the raging obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics. First up is my go-to book for getting information about food additives. The title is A Consumer's Dictionary of Food Additives by Ruth Winter, a syndicated columnist for the New York Times and the author of 35 nonfiction books on health-related topics. Although, at this point in time, the book is 10 years old, it's still a reliable resource. Well, you're just not going to find the newest ingredients introduced in the last decade. This book provides information in 509 pages on the safety and side effects of 12,000 substances that wind up in food as a consequence of formulation, processing, or curing. What makes this book so useful is the alphabetical listing. Sometimes ingredients have more than one name. This dictionary provides cross-references. So you can pretty quickly locate an ingredient's description. There are also other sections with useful information in the book, such as appendices discussing what counts as a serving, or making sure your food hasn't expired, or food storage information with tables containing specific foods and the recommended periods of storage under different conditions. Let's take a look at one additive that you might look up. A very confusing food ingredient that gets listed in all caps is EDTA. That's EDTA. Looking it up in the dictionary shows several entries with cross references. Most likely, it will show up on a food label as disodium EDTA. The book says C ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid, which is the full name corresponding to the acronym. The description under that name says, quote, used as a sequestrant in carbonated beverages. It is also used in non-standardized dressings. It may be irritating to the skin and mucous membranes and cause allergies such as asthma and skin rashes, end quote. Now, if you didn't know what a sequestrant was, then you could just look up sequestering agent in the dictionary and learn that it's a preservative that prevents physical and chemical changes. Moving on, the next recommended book is entitled Salt, Sugar, Fat, 
How the Food Giants Hooked Us by Michael Moss, a reporter for the New York Times and a Pulitzer Prize winner. His book addresses the three pillars of the processed food industry, the ingredients you find in just about every highly processed food. The pillars are salt, sugar, and fat. In recent years, some people are using the acronym SOS, read as sugar, oil, and salt, to represent the pillars. Of course, SOS has a dual meaning. Moss investigated the changes in the American food system in the 20th century, the rise of the usage of these types of ingredients, and sometimes the fall as people protested unhealthy amounts in processed foods. For example, the demonization of fat in the 1990s as the culprit for rising obesity rates. Does anybody remember Nabisco's Snackwell cookies? They were the answer for people craving a dessert but wanting to shun fat. Within the first five months of sales, they made the top 10 list of best-selling cookies and crackers. The most popular variety was the Devil's Food Cake Cookie. Mmm, yeah, I remember them. My favorite. As a chocoholic, I could have eaten those things all day long, but what stopped me was the price, which was significantly higher than other cookies. I couldn't believe that the taste and the texture of those cookies could be so sublime. It was a food engineering marvel. What many people didn't realize back then was that fat-free cookies and crackers had the same caloric content as the regular cookies and crackers. How could that be? After all, each gram of fat has more than twice the calories of a gram of carbs or protein. The secret of the magical engineering was to pack more sugar and other carbs into each cookie. As wonderful as the fat-free or low-fat products were, they did nothing, ultimately, to curtail the continued rise in obesity rates. In his book, Moss investigates each SOS ingredient, its history on our food supply, and the impacts on our health. He begins with sugar. He states that two-thirds of the sugar in our diet comes from processed foods. An interesting fact is that the only flavor a newborn baby shows a preference for is sugar. So our attraction to sugar is inborn. Of course, lactose, the sugar in breast milk, encourages a baby to suckle. The American Heart Association noted that on average, people are consuming 22 teaspoons of added sugar a day. They urged moderately active women to cut back to five teaspoons of sugar, which could easily be met by only six ounces of Coca-Cola or one and a half Fig Newtons. Yeah, really, who's going to have that kind of self-control? It was not just sugar that got people to consumed sweetened foods. There had to be some very tasty flavors involved as well. Take Dr. Pepper, for example. Its unique flavor profile attracts a lot of customers. Dr. Pepper does not have to reveal the ingredients of the flavors, its secret formula. 
But it is estimated that there are 27 total ingredients in a bottle of Dr. Pepper, most of which are synthetic flavoring agents. By 1960, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, was allowing 1,500 flavoring agents in foods and beverages. When it comes to sweetened foods, many of us think of children's cereals. It's ironic that the founder of the Kellogg's company, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, a physician, banned sugar from his products in the late 1800s for health reasons. That changed after his younger brother took over the company in the early 1900s. By the 1940s, sugar was a very common ingredient in children's cereals. Post Foods manufactured alphabets, and in its early form, was considered you know, a pretty low sugar cereal. But by 1983, it was manufacturing very sugary versions of it, such as marshmallow alphabets with 49% sugar. Yikes. A little-known reason why manufacturers like to use sugar in their products is its antibacterial property. If the sugar is sufficiently high, then bacteria will not grow in the product and the shelf life will be extended. When sugar started to get a bad reputation among consumers, companies like Kellogg's changed the names of their cereals. For example, sugar frosted flakes became simply frosted flakes. One way to push sugar onto the unsuspecting public was to associate it with a patriotic campaign. In World War II, the Coca-Cola company offered soldiers Coke for five cents a bottle, no matter where they were stationed. The payoff for the company was that the men and women returning from the war were unknowingly hooked on soda, not only from the taste and sweetness, but also from the caffeine content in the Coke. Of course, we know that soft drink manufacturers gradually increased the sizes of the contents of the soda bottles in the 1950s from 6 ounces to 10 ounces to 26 ounces, which was called family size. Then they upped it to 16 ounces, 20 ounces, and 32 ounces uh, sometime in the 1970s and later. The fountain drinks in convenience stores and fast food restaurants followed suit, eventually getting to a whopping 128-ounce cup, that's a full gallon, called the Team Cup at 7-Eleven. Michael Moss, in his book, notes that by 1995, two and three kids were drinking a 20-ounce bottle of soda daily. He says... You can look at the obesity rates and you could look at per capita consumption of sugary soft drinks and overlay those on a map. And I promise you, they correlate about 0.99999. Philip Morris used to be one of the largest tobacco companies in the world. As the government went after big tobacco because of the connection between smoking and lung cancer, companies like Philip Morris started to lose profits as the sales fell. 
they made a very big strategic move. They began to buy food and beverage companies like the Miller Brewing Company, General Foods, and Kraft. The same people who produced tobacco products like cigarettes and cigars were now making Cool Whip, Lunchables, Velveeta, Tang, and Cocoa Pebble cereal. The food companies were a cash cow for them. There were no public outcries about selling products full of sugar and fat. To downplay their bad reputation, Philip Morris eventually changed his name to Altria in 2003. As processed food companies became more sophisticated and research-based, they realized that sugar and fat did not work independently of each other. In combination, there was a bliss point where there was an allure that neither could attain alone. For example, candies like M&Ms are not predominantly carbs or sugar because 60 to 80% of their calories come from fat. The fat is invisible since it has no taste of its own. The rise in fat consumption is no more apparent than in the rising consumption of cheese in this country. Quote, Americans now eat as much as 33 pounds or more of cheese and pseudo-cheese products a year, triple the amount we consumed in the early 1970s. Cheese eating has increased 3 pounds per person since 2001. Cheese has become the single largest source of saturated fat in the American diet though it is hardly the only culprit. Day in and day out, Americans on average are exceeding the recommended maximum of fat by more than 50%. End quote. As the taste and desire for milk waned in the United States, the dairy industry shifted its production to cheese and then marketed the hell out of it. One pound of cheese takes a gallon of milk. At one time in the 1970s, the U.S. government was committed to buying all of the surplus cheese, butter, and dried milk produced by dairy farmers, costing taxpayers $4 billion a year. It grew so large, in fact, that the government began secreting it away in caverns and a vast abandoned limestone mine near Kansas City. The last pillar of the processed food industry is salt. In the 1980s, there was growing concern about salt due to the rise of hypertension or high blood pressure in the population. Apparently, one in four Americans were afflicted by it and the numbers were growing steadily. There were other cofactors like obesity, smoking, and diabetes, but salt was also implicated. Americans were eating so much salt that they were getting up to 20 times the amount of sodium that the body needed. Quote, the maximum amount of sodium that the federal government recommends people eat every day is 2,300 milligrams. In 2010, the government lowered this target for people who are especially vulnerable to the hazards of salt. People 51 years or older, blacks of any age, and anyone with diabetes, hypertension, or chronic kidney disease. These 141 million people, 
a majority of American adults, were now being urged to keep their sodium intake below 1,500 milligrams a day. That's less than a teaspoon a day, end quote. Michael Moss goes on to say, quote, Manufacturers view salt as perhaps the most magical of the three pillars of processed foods for all the things it can do beyond exciting the taste buds. In the world of processed foods, salt is the great fixer. It corrects myriad problems that arise as a matter of course in the factory. Cornflakes, for example, taste metallic without it. Crackers are bitter and soggy and stick to the roof of your mouth. Ham turns so rubbery it can bounce. In commercial bread making, salt keeps the huge fast spinning machinery from gumming up and the factory line from backing up. Salt slows down the rising process so that the ovens can keep up with the pace. End quote. A food industry consultant discovered that as people age, they tend to consume more cookies, crackers, candy, and chips. On average, 12 pounds more per year. Now, in summing up his book, here's what Michael Moss had to say. Quote, if nothing else, this book is intended as a wake-up call to the issues and tactics at play in the food industry, to the fact that we are not helpless in facing them down. We have choices, particularly when it comes to grocery shopping. And I saw this book on its most basic level as a tool for defending ourselves when we walk through those doors. Some of the tricks being used to seduce us are subtle, and awareness is key. The gentle canned music, the in-store bakery aromas, the soft drink coolers by the checkout lanes, the placement of some of the most profitable but worse-for-you foods at eye level, with healthier staples like whole wheat flour or plain oats on the lowest shelf, and the fresh fruits and vegetables way off on one side of the store. But there is nothing subtle about the products themselves. They are knowingly designed, engineered is the better word, to maximize their allure. Their packaging is tailored to excite our kids. Their advertising uses every psychological trick to overcome any logical arguments we might have for passing the product by. Their taste is so powerful, we remember it from the last time we walked down the aisle and succumbed, snatching them up. And above all else, their formulas are calculated and perfected by scientists who know very well what they're doing. The most crucial point to know is that there is nothing accidental in the grocery store. All of this is done with a purpose. End quote. The third book is called The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor by Mark Schatzker, a freelance journalist who has published articles in many popular newspapers and magazines. As you can tell from the title, the focus of his book is the flavoring of processed foods with particular emphasis on Dorito corn chips. He brings up the obesity epidemic and points out that it's not our genes that have changed that have caused the problem. It's the food environment that has changed. And in his opinion, the aspect of the environment that has changed the most is flavor. Archibald West, a marketing executive with Frito-Lay, is credited with inventing the tortilla chip in America. 
but the chips were kind of bland. So he set out to create a chip that tasted like a taco, hence the birth of Doritos. After taco flavoring in the mid-1980s, the company created nacho cheese and Cool Ranch, followed by umpteen other flavors into the present. Using sophisticated instrumentation, scientists and flavor companies were able to isolate the mysterious chemicals which gave rise to the experience of flavor. That business is very secretive. That's why you will often see flavor ingredients listed simply as, quote, flavors or, quote, flavorings on food labels. The FDA does not require that food manufacturers reveal the compounds used in those flavorings. The original Taco Doritos had 11 ingredients. The more recent Jacked Ranch Dipped Hot Wings Doritos that are supposed to taste like chicken wings dipped in hot sauce and dressing have 34 ingredients. The larger number of ingredients has much to do with the increased complexity of flavors used in modern foods. In Mark Schatzker's words, quote, The Dorito effect, very simply, is what happens when food gets blander and flavor technology gets better. This book argues that we need to begin understanding food through the same lens by which it is experienced, how it tastes. He uses a classic example uh, to illustrate this point. Most of us love vanilla. It still is the most popular ice cream flavor, despite Baskin-Robbins' introductions. However, the most expensive and flavorful vanilla comes from the vanilla bean grown in Madagascar and other places. In the late 19th century, a German chemist, Wilhelm Harman, evaluated a white powder isolated from pine cones, which he purified and then sold as vanillin, a cheaper vanilla-flavored product. Later, the same chemical was isolated from clove oil using a cheaper process. Most people today purchase low-cost vanillin flavoring agent as an alcohol solution. The problem with vanillin is that it's not a pure substance, but rather a mixture of over 100 aromatic compounds. In the late 70s, the well-known spice company McCormick identified and isolated the key ingredient of vanillin that was responsible for the vanilla flavor. In 1982, McCormick started selling a product that they called Imitation Vanilla that just contained 30 ingredients. Various flavor companies have tried to isolate and purify various flavor components to make artificial flavors. In 1965, there were just 700 of those chemicals, but nowadays there are more than 2,200. According to Mark Schatzka, quote, these chemicals are mixed and blended in an almost endless combination to produce knockoffs that keep getting more complex, layered, and convincing. Name anything. Raspberry, chicken, pineapple, tomato, blueberries, even tacos, and there were chemicals that imitated it. McCormick provides custom flavor solutions for nine of the top 10 American food companies and eight of the 10 food service companies. These are large chain restaurants that sell to small restaurants, school cafeterias, hospitals, etc. End quote. 
Euromonitor International estimates that the American flavor market produces 605 million pounds of flavoring every year, which is about two pounds for every person. The food industry can flavor a serving of yogurt for one penny. The company that first made vanillin is now called Simrise, and it has an inventory of 50,000 flavorings. So, what do all these synthetic flavorings have to do with overeating, obesity, and type 2 diabetes? Here's what Mark Schatzker has to say on that subject. Quote, Eating is a behavior driven by an expectation of pleasure, and the mental vocabulary of those desires is not salt, sugar, or any other class of nutrients. We crave flavors. Flavors are what make food seem like food. It is tempting to view the increase in obesity as a result of an increase in dosage that the food companies have created the snack equivalent of crystal meth and have gotten us all hooked. The truth is, in fact, stranger. People are being exposed to more abusive food. Occasional users have become heavy users, and heavy users have become addicts. Yes, part of the problem is junk food. There is more of it, and it's more alluring than ever. We're turning real food into junk food. We coat it in calories, drench it in dressing, and dust it in synthetic flavor. The blander it becomes, the harder we try to make it seem real. The rise in obesity is the predictable result of the rise in manufactured deliciousness. Pleasure may help explain why people are eating too much. Synthetic flavor might be the salesman in the fancy suit that sells our brains the calorie-rich fat and carbs we're eating so much of. But real flavor, the authentic version produced in nature, is our only road to salvation. I will say it again. Real flavor is our salvation. Humans do not bumble through the world and eat the wrong food by accident. We like the wrong food. Humans have shown over and over again that they too form learned preferences for flavors when they're paired with calories. Scientists have even witnessed these flavor preferences in action in brain scans. We stagger through our environment on a never-ending quest for calories and then just bumble into vitamins and minerals along the way. End quote. Here are some of Schatzker's final words in his book which summarize his views of the current state of our food system. Quote, The food problem is a flavor problem. For half a century, we've been making the stuff people should eat. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, unprocessed meats, incrementally less delicious. Meanwhile, we've been making the food people shouldn't eat. Chips, fast food, soft drinks, crackers, taste ever more exciting. It all boils down to what I call the rules of flavor. Number one, humans are flavor-seeking animals. The pleasure provided by food, which we experience as flavor, is so powerful that only the most strong-willed among us can resist it. Number two, in nature, there is an intimate connection between flavor and nutrition. And three, synthetic flavor technology not only breaks that connection, it also confounds it. In nature, flavor never appears without nutrition. No morsel of food should pass your lips 
before you have asked the following question, where did the flavor come from? If it came from the plant or animal you're eating, keep eating. If it was applied by a human with a PhD in chemistry, put it down. Each time you consume human-made flavors, you're tricking the brain, or worse, the brain of a child. The more you do it, the greater the consequences. The less you do it, the less you'll like food like that in the first place. Read the ingredients. The following words indicate the presence of chemicals that fool your nose. Natural flavor, natural flavorings, artificial flavor, flavoring, or just simply flavor, end quote. The fourth book to review is The End of Overeating, Taking Control of the Insatiable American Appetite by David A. Kessler, M.D. Dr. Kessler is one of my favorite authors because, as a medical doctor, he not only knows his stuff, but he was also an FDA commissioner under Presidents Bush and Clinton, and therefore quite familiar with the workings of government and its interactions with industry. He took the tobacco companies to task for promoting and selling products that cause lung cancer and addiction. Basically, Dr. Kessler addresses the fact that food, especially food that is full of sugar fat, grabs us. He says that we are wired to respond to such foods and that our brains are built to focus uh, on the most appealing stimuli in our environment. Quote, overeating is just one of the many behaviors driven by this response. Whether the stimulus is drugs or food, it has the power to command our attention and the power to arouse our longing. It has the power to condition our behavior and to capture us so that we come back again and again for more. When we understand our brain's response to food and how it drives our lack of control, we can change our approach to eating, both the availability of highly processed food products as well as the nature of this food, is capturing our brain circuitry with profound consequences. End quote. As regards the obesity epidemic, Dr. Kessler blames overeating. But the cause of overeating centers on the brain's reward system. He says that the fight between energy balance, that is calories in, calories out, and reward is being won by the reward system. The brain can be stimulated to cause the body to eat long after the caloric needs are met. How many times have you just continued to consume a large bag of potato chips long after your stomach was full? Dr. Kessler blames the processed and fast food industries for creating foods with just the right combination of sugar, fat, and salt to make the foods hyperpalatable or simply irresistible. Studies have shown that animals will work for foods that are high in sugar and fat even if they are not hungry. Dr. Kessler goes on to explain how there is a connection in brain chemistry between opioids and highly tasty foods. He says, quote, The neurons in the brain that are stimulated by taste are part of the opioid circuitry, end quote. It's not just stimulation at play here, but also the possibilities of pain mediation and stress relief. It's interesting to note that drug addicts are often attracted to high-sugar, high-fat foods. It turns out that the more rewarding a food is, the more attention we give it, and then we pursue it aggressively. Another important factor in overeating are cues. 
things we see or hear that stimulate us to eat. That's where advertising comes in. And iconic symbols like the golden arches at McDonald's. The cubes grab us and arouse us to act. According to Dr. Kessler, here is the process. Quote, a cue triggers a dopamine-fueled urge. Dopamine leads us to food. Eating food leads to opioid release, and the production of both dopamine and opioids stimulates further eating. End quote. That's how cravings and eating habits are born. The food industry responds to these natural human inclinations by making foods that stimulate our brains. Also, when you look at processed food, it's designed to be consumed with little effort. Removing the fibrous components that make the food hard to chew and swallow, fast food requires little mouth action and goes down easily. Here's what one food scientist at Frito-Lay had to say about the five key influences that make a food irresistible in order of important. Quote, calories, flavor hits, ease of eating, meltdown, which refers to how it breaks apart in your mouth, and early hit, end quote. Think about these attributes the next time you eat flaming Hot Cheetos. The take-home message here is that companies that make highly processed foods formulate them in a very calculated way to get their consumers hooked. Dr. Kessler summed up the problems nicely when he wrote, quote, a segment of the American population seems especially vulnerable to the stimuli that lead to conditioned hypereating. But in the end, this is behavior that anyone can develop. Learning to overeat is an incremental process that grows with repeated exposure. Ultimately, it begins to seem more surprising that some people manage to eat normally than that many do not. End quote. In the last part of Dr. Kessler's book, he addresses how to reverse the trend in overeating by recognizing and then changing cues, increasing awareness, establishing new behaviors, shifting attention, gathering support, and establishing new rules of eating that work for you. Lastly, he says, quote, While a combination of human biology, personal experience, and a determined industry may explain why we overeat, we still have the ability to make choices about whether we allow this triumvirate to dominate our behavior, end quote. The final book to review is Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease by Robert H. Lustig, M.D. Dr. Lustig is an endocrinologist, that's a hormone doctor, who is an expert in the causes of childhood obesity and also the president of the Institute for Responsible Nutrition. In recent years, he has been on a crusade to warn people of the dangers of sugar consumption, particularly fructose-containing sugars. I mentioned the same book in the previous episode where I talked about the most dangerous stories in America. For me, the book was an eye-opener because it addressed obesity as a complex problem tied up with metabolism, hormones, brain chemistry, food cravings, genetics, and processed foods. Little did I know 
that the obesity epidemic was so complicated. Dr. Lustig dispels the notion that weight gain is simply an imbalance between calories in and calories out. He questions the idea that all calories are created equal. That is, a sugar calorie behaves the same in the body as a protein calorie. Yes, one gram of sugar and one gram of protein both produce four calories when burned, but the body responds differently to each of these macronutrients. Plus, all humans are not created equal, so you may metabolize that one gram of sugar differently than I would. Dr. Lustig learned about child obesity when he treated children with physical disorders. There were children who got fat because a brain tumor was removed and a part of the brain which controlled appetite or cravings got messed up. In some children, a thyroid gland was diseased and that screwed up their metabolism. He found a number of mechanisms to explain excessive weight gain in children. When he started piecing the puzzle together, he realized that there were lots of ways that the body could get out of balance that involved the brain, the endocrine system, and the digestive tract. The unhealthy American food system triggered all kinds of health problems. In the book, he talks about metabolic syndrome, a term that I had heard before but knew very little about. Metabolic syndrome is a group of chronic conditions that can lead to serious medical problems. There are five conditions that make up the syndrome. Obesity, diabetes, high triglycerides, that's fat, and bad cholesterol, or LDL, in the blood. Then high blood pressure, and finally cardiovascular disease. Anybody who has three of these five conditions may have metabolic syndrome. Dr. Lustig claims that metabolic syndrome may soon overtake smoking as the leading cause of heart disease. A related physical condition is abdominal fat. If you carry excess fat in your belly rather than your butt or legs, that kind of fat storage is also a sign of metabolic syndrome. Chapter 4 is the section of the book where Dr. Lustig discusses the role of hormones in causing overeating and obesity. This is the nitty-gritty of the book, and a single reading is not likely to lead to full comprehension. The subject matter is pretty complicated. But if you master that chapter, you will have a much better understanding about why some people get fat and others don't even though their lifestyles and food habits might be similar. I used to believe, as many others, that if you watched your caloric intake and exercised regularly, then you would be able to maintain a normal body weight, or BMI. Unfortunately, human physiology is not that simple. I can't get into the details of it because, as I said, it's pretty complicated. However, Dr. Lustig does shed some light on what he thinks are the causes of metabolic syndrome in otherwise healthy people. In short, it's our environment. Here's what Dr. Lustig has to say about American fast food. Quote, we prefer to focus on the addictive potential of food itself by placing it in the scope of other identified substances of abuse. Alcohol is the most analogous substance to fast food for several reasons, including its biochemistry. Fast food is high in calories, sugar, fat, salt, and caffeine. 
It is highly processed, energy dense, and specifically designed to be highly palatable. The majority of the fiber and a portion of the vitamins and minerals present in the original food have been extracted in processing. Sugar, salt, and other additives are used to boost flavor. I've laid out the data that demonstrate that fat and salt increase the appeal of the fast food meal, but it's the sugar and the caffeine that are the true hooks, end quote. Dr. Lustig also touches on stress in our society and the craving for comfort foods. He points out that the word stress is desserts, spelled backwards. Interesting. It's mentioned that only 10% of metabolic syndrome can be explained by genetics. So most of us can't blame our parents and grandparents for our big bellies. Dr. Lustig cites four components that contribute to the problem. He calls these the four foodstuffs of the apocalypse. They are, one, trans fats from partially hydrogenated oils. Number two, branched-chain amino acids from the consumption of excess protein. Number three, alcohol. And number four, fructose, one of the sugars found in high-fructose corn syrup and also released when table sugar is biochemically broken down in the body. He considers fructose a toxin. He goes into great detail about why fructose is demonized, which I can't get into here, but suffice it to say that he claims fructose interferes with the body's attempt to balance food intake with energy expenditure. Additionally, Lustig discusses the important role of fiber in the diet and the negative impacts of environmental toxins. Although he does make various recommendations for avoiding metabolic syndrome, he says that it really comes down to one simplistic statement, quote, eat real food, end of quote. Well, food eaters, that's it for the recommended books and reviews. I hope that they were informative. Most people don't know what they're eating and the nutritional impacts of that food. Yeah, they may know what the major ingredients are, like the meats, grains, and veggies, but they are unfamiliar or unconcerned about the rest of the ingredients, many of which are synthetic and highly processed. Food manufacturers and fast food restaurant chains are not concerned about your health. That's a fact. They are in the business to make money, not to make a healthy society. So, as stated earlier, your best defense against the standard American diet is education. Be conscious and aware of what you're eating. By being educated on the subject, you can then make wise choices. Hey, if you decide to read any of those books, let me know what you think. Well, it's time to end this episode. To all you food eaters out there in podcast land, I appreciate you taking the time to tune in. If you have a little more time, I'd greatly appreciate a review, good, bad, or indifferent, at the iTunes store. You can find all the episodes of Food Labels Revealed and their show notes at the hosting website called Podbean. That's at www.podbean.com or just by Googling Food Labels Revealed. And, of course, you can always listen to the podcast on your smartphone or tablet by downloading a podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or a host of others, too numerous to mention. I've started to upload the audio tracks of the episodes of this podcast to YouTube. 
So there's another outlet for you. You can sit on the living room couch eating popcorn and watch the FLR logo on the TV screen while listening to old episodes. If you have a question or comment or anything about food ingredients or this podcast or just want to say hello, just drop me a line at foodlabelsrevealed at gmail.com. That's foodlabelsrevealed, all one phrase, at gmail.com. If you think your family, friends, coworkers, or acquaintances might be interested in this podcast, tweet or post a link through your social media outlets to get the word out. Don't forget that the references provided in this podcast are available in the show notes located at the Podbean hosting website. Lastly, I have a Facebook page that is an adjunct to the podcast. Several times a week, I post news items related to food ingredients, processed foods, and food trends. Just search in Facebook under Food Labels Revealed Podcast. And please, give it a like when you get a chance. And feel free to comment and share. Next month, I'll return to evaluating meals in fast food restaurants. But I don't know at this point uh, which restaurants. So stay tuned. Till next time, always remember this. If you want to eat well and keep yourself healthy, eat food mainly from natural plants, not manufacturing plants. The outro music piece is a clip from Fluffing the Duck, composed by Kevin McLeod.